Let's read, or excuse me, let's pray, and then we're going to read 30 through 34. Let's pray first. Holy Spirit, we pray now for help. We pray for your grace. We, we acknowledge that you are the one who wrote the scriptures, and you're the one who convicts us and encourages us and helps us to understand and opens our eyes to know the scriptures. So we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do that for us today, and that you would receive all, all the praise, that Christ would be honored. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, Mark chapter 6, 30 through 34. Okay, Mark chapter 6, 30 through 34. The apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. For there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. They went away in the boat to a secluded place by themselves. The people saw them going, and many recognized them and ran together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd, and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. Now, you remember last week I was talking a little about the sandwich technique of Mark, how he'll start a story, and then before he finishes that story, he inserts another story, and then later on after that story, he actually finishes what he started over here. Well, if you turn back and look at verse 7 of chapter 6... Verse 7 says, And he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And then before they get back, you have this long story about John the Baptist, Herod, and Herodias. Well, here they're back. And that's where you pick up in verse 30. Okay, verse 30 is talking about those who were sent out, now they're back. This is a beautiful, what we're going to see here today is it's in contrast to what we saw last week. Last week we saw a failed king. Last week we saw a self-seeking king, a selfish king. We saw a king whose motives were not only selfish, they were diabolical, right? Um, and of course there was, there was a lot of, of um, evil being worked behind the scenes by his wife Herodias. But ultimately we saw a failed king, Herod. Well, it's no accident that Mark puts this story right next to what we have with the failed king. We're seeing today a true king. Now, this is going to be the introduction to what we're going to see next week when Christ feeds the 5,000. But the reason why we're going to take this only these first four uh, verses before we get to that is because if you don't understand who Christ is here in these four verses, you're not going to understand who Christ is and what he's doing whenever he feeds the 5,000. I guarantee it. And, and, and you'll see what I mean by the end of this, by the end of today. You'll say, oh, I, I get it now, okay? So what we have here, I'm going to break this sermon up into three sections, okay? Number one, we're going to see that Christ is captain or king. Christ is the king. That's in verse 30. Number two, we'll see that Christ is our rest. That's 31 and 32. And then lastly, and most of the time today, it will be spent on looking at Christ as our shepherd, 33 and 34, verses 33 and 34. Okay, so let's start first with Christ as our king, Christ as the king, and that's in verse 30. So verse 30 again, the apostles gathered together with Jesus. What do you see in the difference between verse 7 and verse 30? In verse 7, you do not have the word apostle. Verse 30, you do have the word apostle. What's going on? Well, apostle just means sent one. Okay, it means the sent one. So in other words, these are apostles with a capital A, it doesn't necessarily mean they're being referred to that yet here. This can just be a, a reference to they were the ones who were sent out. Now they come back. So that's the first thing to notice. But notice what they do, okay? When they go off, they, it says they gather together with Jesus. Now, if you think about it, they don't just go forth. They're not just sent out. And, and once they're sent out, they just go and do whatever they want to do. Like just start doing their own thing. They don't do that. They report back to Jesus. It says as much, right? Look at verse 30. They reported to him all they had done and taught. That is a military word. 
That's a word that you would use about a soldier who's reporting back to his commander. That's, that's the word that's going on here. These are soldiers, these are ambassadors who are not being sent in their own authority. They're not going out with their own authority, with their own power. They're coming back and they're reporting to him. Look what they report, what happens. They report to him all they had done and taught. Why do they have to report to him all they had done and taught? All they had done and, you know, it's, it's, not, it's like this, right? They're reporting to him so that they are, they're basically submitting to his authority. Christ, when he sends them out, right, they're assuming that we are going out and we can't just do whatever we want to do. We can't just teach whatever we want to teach whenever we go out. There are certain rules and regulations and restrictions that we as ambassadors have when we go out. They go back and they report to him, hey, this is what we did. This is what we taught. Now, what's really good about just this scene right here is because this is called the regulative principle of worship or the regulative principle. The regulative principle, in a nutshell, is this. The Bible regulates, the Word of God regulates whatever you do, right? Everything you do is to be regulated by the Word of God. There are parameters outside of which we don't go. When it comes, And I mentioned worship. The regulative principle of worship is the idea that whatever God tells us to do in worship, we do. And not anything else. So if you think about it, and, and so, so especially in a church plant, it's very important when you have a church plant, okay, what kind of worship service are we to have? Well, really you have two options, okay? Usually what's done is you get together, let's say the, the, the leadership gets together, and they're like, okay, listen, what kind of culture are we in? What are the people going to want in a worship service? What's going to attract people? What's, what's going to turn people off? And based on that, we'll, we'll say, okay, this is the way we'll do worship. Whatever people want, we'll do. Whatever they don't want, we'll avoid. Right? That is the opposite of the regulative principle of worship. And the reason, so here's the, here's the alternative, right? And this is what we do in this church. We gather together. We say, okay, it's not what do the people want? What do we want? What, if, what do we think would, would, would be best or would work best, right? We say, what does God's word say? When it comes to worship, has God told us how to worship him? Do we see examples for how to do things from the word of God? And of course we do. And so if you look at what we do in, this, in our worship service, everything in the, in the worship service, I guarantee you, is outlined somewhere in the scriptures. There's a reason why we do things in the scriptures. And so it's not just willy-nilly. It's not just, hey, I think this is going to work. And, or, or, hey, I think Bob's really going to like this. Bob, look at what we're doing. It's saying this is what God prescribes. We're going to do it whether you or I like it or not, right? Because it's what God wants. Now, over time, what's going to happen is God's people, if you love God's word, it might be different. It might be unusual. It might be, it might, you know, it might not look like what you're used to. But ultimately, it comes down to this. Is it biblical? Is it what God's word says to do? And if it is, then that's good, right? Because we've seen that when people offer false worship to God, he strikes people down for that. It's a serious thing. Okay, but here's the other thing. It's not just when it comes to church plants or worship services. When you're talking about, and I'm using this, by the way, because when, 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 they're, when they're reporting back to Christ and they're telling him all that they've taught and all that they've done, they're doing so in a way that there's no doubt about it because we've already seen that they're just extensions of what Christ was already doing. 
there needs to be there needs to be harmony there needs to be a correlation a correspondence between what christ is doing and what they're doing and so they're reporting to him back we don't have christ in our midst in the in a physical way we don't have christ standing here where we can go and we can say christ tell us what to do and we'll do it christ tell us what to teach and we'll teach it christ tell us how to how to behave at work and we'll, we'll behave that way christ tell us what to do in our homes and we'll do it we don't have christ standing here but that's why we have the word of god you see that and in Hebrews 1, it talks about how in these latter days, God has given to us his son and his son has spoken. And so now we have God's word here in the scriptures. And that is why whatever we do, not just in worship service, but let's say again, let's let's talk about at work. Is there somewhere in, I think we said this yesterday, actually we did, right? In the study, we're, we're mentioning, hey, you're not going to find in first, you know, first Corinthians, whatever, or anywhere else in the Bible somewhere about how do I act as a corrections officer? How do I operate as someone who, who runs a dairy, right? Or who, who is a UPS driver? You don't have a chapter on that. So does that mean the Bible doesn't speak about that? Of course not. There's general principles and patterns that you see in Scripture for whatever it is in life. Whether it's being a father, whether it's being a mother, whether it's children even. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. So regardless of what station you are or what phase you are in life, regardless of where you live, regardless of what you do, you are, we have, we have a, a book that tells us how we are to operate. This is 2 second, second Timothy 3 verse 16. All scripture is God breathed and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished, and here it is, for all good works. Not for most of them, not for some of them, for all good works, and it's for all of life. Down to whether or not, you know, you should eat Cheerios or something else. I mean, it it really is. Because you're looking for, for, for principles, and they're in there. And so we need to go to the Word, and that's why it's so important that we're reading the Word and studying the Word all the time so that we do know what to do and how to act. Otherwise, we go back and report to Christ all that we do, all that we teach, and He's like... Why are you doing that? Who told you to do that, right? Think about these churches out here in Clovis. Who told you to do this or that or that or that? Well, we just felt like Bob wanted to see that. Well, who's Bob, right? Why does Bob get a say in how to worship me? I've already told you. So, and that's for anything, okay? So number one, again, Christ, that shows us that Christ is our king. We mentioned yesterday in the study, who is, who is, the, who is the head of this church, I'm talking this specific church plant. Who is the head of this church plant? It's not me. It's Christ. Christ is the head of this church. He is the head over everything that we do. And if he's not, we are in serious trouble. And most churches, he's not, I guarantee it. They say it, but he's not. And so we want to really make sure. And again, who's head of, who is the head of my home? Better be Christ. Now, of course, I'm called to be a representative of Christ in my home as the husband, as the father. And you are two fathers, right? But ultimately, the whole thing is, I am under Christ. I am under Christ. He is the king. He's the captain. He calls the shots, and he has called the shots, and he's told us what those shots are in the word. Number two, though, okay, as far as this look at Christ. So he is our king. He's our captain. Number two, Christ as our rest. Christ as our rest. Look at verse 31. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. For there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. 
They went away in the boat to a secluded place by themselves. You know what the greatest part of, in my mind, these two verses are? The first phrase right here. And he said to them, he said to them, come away by yourselves. What's great about that is notice who's not the one who's initiating it. The disciples are worn out. There's no doubt. They're worn to the bone, but they're not the ones going to Christ and saying, Christ, I'm worn out. Can you please give us a break? I'm, I'm, I, I, we can't even eat. Notice who it is. It's Christ who recognizes that about his disciples. He goes to them. Why? Because he knows them. He knows their needs. He knows their conflict. He knows their troubles. He knows their struggles. He knows what they need. He goes to them and he's not a hard taskmaster. He's not a hard slave driver. He goes to them and says, guys, you need some rest. Let's go away over here for a while. In other words, he's saying, guys, you did good. I'm proud of you. You need a rest now. Let's go rest. Think of this, okay? Every single week, Christ has given us an entire day when he says, come away from the world, from the business, from the affairs of life, from everything going on, the clutter and the, all the distractions, all of that. Come away and rest for a whole day. That's why they used to call it a whole, where, the, the word holiday, I think I mentioned here, right? Holiday comes from holy day. Well, in the past, especially in the Roman Catholic tradition, you have a bunch of holy days. The Reformers, the, the Puritans, the Presbyterians, they come out and they say, wait a minute. Why, why do we have all these holy days when God himself prescribes to us a holy day every single week called the Lord's Day? Called the Christian Sabbath. That's what it's about. Remember what Christ in this gospel, he says, hey, the Sabbath was, the Sabbath was, was made for man. It was made for you to be able to rest, to come away from the affairs, the busyness, and rest. Spiritually, primarily, physically, in the sense of doing things that you're, you ordinarily don't do. And there's rest in that. That's the way God has wired us. We spent like two or three weeks talking about that earlier on, right? So God has given us this day of rest. But also notice this, okay? And I'm saying this because it's a beautiful thing, like when we were talking about the Sabbath, that He knows our frame. Like we read this morning or this afternoon in Psalm 103. Psalm 103 talks about how God knows our frame, but we're, we're, we're but dust. He knows that. And so we also know this though, Christ as our rest, okay, and this is not primarily what this is talking about. So don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to make something, make it say what it's not saying, but you can extrapolate from this something bigger than, than this in the sense of this. Okay, Christ is our rest. If you ever, if you ever talk to a, a Roman Catholic, or even an Arminian who thinks you can lose your salvation, or someone of that, of that, of that, that flavor, and 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 they're sincere about it. Let's say they are sincere Roman Catholics, or they are sincere, you know, Church of Christ. There's a lot of different groups out there that that, that have this mindset. Arminians, and you go to them and you, you you say, Hey, are you confident right now? Are you certain that if you were to die, you would be right with God? No. I hope so. I, I, you know, I believe so in my better moments, but then I have these really bad moments and I'm like, no way. And there's always this, this, this spiritual dilemma in their lives that they're saying, I have no rest. I have no peace. I have no assurance. I have no confidence. They're kind of going all over the place. They're doing everything they can so that they can achieve or, or, or maintain some kind of peace or status with God so that they don't, so that they don't experience this, this, this lack of rest, right? Well, in Christ, we know it's the opposite. 
And Christ, Christ himself, the purpose of Christ being on earth when he's with his disciples is he's in the process of redeeming a people for himself so that we as his people know that when we rest in Christ, our works are not what merit us, give us merit in the eyes of God. Our works don't, it's not like we bring our works along and we throw them at the feet of, well, we do throw them at the feet of God. But as far as our salvation goes, it's not like God is saying, okay, if you bring enough good works to me, I'll let you in. It's not, why? Because our rest is in Christ. Christ has achieved it for us. Christ is the one who is perfect in every word, thought, and deed. Christ is the one who's on his way to the cross to die for sinners on the cross in their place. So he is our rest. And that's why in Romans it says, There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You want to know who is feeling the condemnation? Any of those groups I just mentioned. They feel condemnation every single day as far as their sins go. They don't know if they're right with God. And Christ, he promises the opposite of that. There is now, therefore, no condemnation. There's assurance there. There's certainty. But we need to look to him. Now, here's the third thing. And we're going to be spending most of our time on this. Okay, Christ as shepherd. And they go together. You know, this idea of rest in Christ as shepherd. Okay, 33 and 34. Look at this. The people saw them going, and many recognized them and ran there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And I tell you what, and we've ran in, we've, I think we ran into this earlier, you know, maybe a couple months ago. But this is amazing because it's ironic because the disciples, although they're tired and they can't even eat, they're not going to get the rest they so long for. But here's, isn't that how it works though? I mean, that's the beauty of this. Like, this is how life works right here. These disciples are like, finally, we're going to get a break. We get some rest. We have this. You know, we've been really looking forward to this. We've been working hard. We've been working our tails off. And then you go home and your your kids need something, right? And it's time to play with your kids or, you know, you got to, you know, there's chores and all that. And you're like, man, I thought I was going to get some rest. That's life. And here you have the disciples They're going through the same thing. And here you have Christ, the greatest example that we have in Scripture. You know, if you want to know how should I live, how should I react, how should I operate, look at how Christ responds to this. Christ is tired too, there's no doubt. Christ is worn out. Christ can't catch a break either. But he sees these people, and what it says here is he felt compassion for them. Notice, not irritation, not impatience. Not aggravation, all these things that, that, that we feel. It's like, man, you got to be kidding me. I finally got a little break and, and boom. Christ, doesn't, there's none of that. He sees the large crowd and he feels compassion for them. Compassion. And then it says why he feels compassion. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, if I were to ask you this idea of they were sheep without a shepherd or something like that, the first thing that you or I would probably think of is this saying right here in the Bible, when Christ says it, or when it's said about Christ, that he's, he is the shepherd, we are the sheep, and all of that is true, right? But for these first century Jews, these Israelites, we have to think, what would they think of? Whenever they encountered this idea of a, a, of a shepherd or sheep, what would go through their head? It wouldn't be Christ saying it, because Christ hadn't said it up to this point. This hadn't been spoken about Christ, at least directly, right? So what would be going through their head? Well, a lot. 
Because this idea of a sheep or sheep without a shepherd, turn with me to Numbers 27. We're, we're just going to kind of do a little, a, a little fly over here through some spots in the Old Testament. And I promise you by the end of this, it's, it's, it'll, it'll, you'll be seeing this idea a lot differently. Okay, Numbers 27. Now, to give you the backdrop of what's going on here in Numbers 27, this is when Moses is interacting with God regarding the promised land, and God is telling Moses, Moses, you are not going into the promised land. You're disqualified. You did not glorify my name among the people. Remember when he strikes the rock? He strikes the rock, and there's different interpretations on that. You know, he struck it twice. Maybe he was just supposed to strike it once. Whatever it is, God tells us, what the problem was is that Moses did not honor God's name in the midst of the people. Okay? And because of that, God says, Moses, you're not going in. You're not going into the promised land. However, look in verse 15. So this is, this is what Moses says in response to that. Numbers 27, verse 15. Then Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, May the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who will go out and come in before them and who will lead them out and bring them in so that the congregation of the Lord will not be like sheep who have no shepherd. Okay, so God hears this. All right, he hears him out. Look at the response in verse 18. So the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua. And Eric spent a lot of time this afternoon in the catechism class talking about the name of Jesus. Yeshua, Joshua. Okay, take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit. Now you remember Christ. One of the things that you see right off the bat in the gospel of Mark is the anointing of the Holy Spirit upon Christ. The Spirit is descending upon Christ. He's anointed by the Holy Spirit. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. You see that all over the place. Joshua in Christ, Joshua is a type of Christ. Christ is the greater Joshua. He's the fulfillment of what's going on here. Look at this though. A man in whom is the Spirit and lay your hand on him. So there's the anointing aspect. And have him stand before Eleazar the priest and before all the congregation and commission him in their sight. Um, you shall put some of your authority on him in order that all the congregation of the sons of Israel may obey him, etc. Okay, what is Joshua's commission though? Joshua's commission is to go into the promised land and exterminate all the evildoers in the promised land. That's his commission. And, they're, they're, and the reason they're doing it, by the way, and I know they, they you know, these, the, Joshua and the boys, they always catch flack because they go in and they wipe out everybody. And people are like, oh, that's so cruel. That's, and it, I mean, from our standpoint, right, they were not innocent, though. And the, these, these guys, the, the, the Amorites and the, the Hizites, these guys were not, they weren't innocent. They had it coming to them. Um, and we do, too. It's by God's grace alone that we haven't been wiped out. And if it was to take place, we deserve it. However, it, Josh, God uses Joshua to go and do that. Now, this is also a type in the sense of this, okay? When Joshua goes into the promised land, what he is doing is he is cleansing the land of evil. What does Christ tell us he's come to do? To destroy the works of the devil. To bind the strong man who is the devil. We see Christ doing the same thing. He enters into the same land and he begins a process of cleansing not only there, we'll see that it extends throughout wherever the gospel goes, but he's in the process of removing or eliminating evil. That's what Joshua's called to do. But does he finish it? No. He doesn't finish it. Okay. That's why he turned to Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel 34. Here we're going to find the Davidic shepherd. Okay. David as a shepherd. Now, when we look at this in Ezekiel 34, the problem with that is that David has long been dead. 
He's talking about the Davidic shepherd. David's already dead. David, in his time, though, there is a passage where it talks about how David and his conquest. Remember, David's a man of blood. He's a man of war. That's why he can't can't build the temple. However, However, there is a section in the reign of David where it says that the land had peace. So what Joshua starts over here, by the time you get to David, there is an aspect in which David actually finishes some of that. What Joshua starts, David culminates with. He finishes it. Okay. However, look what it says. Now we're going to start in verse 2 because we're going to see the contrast between the bad shepherds. Because after David, what do you have? Do you have good kings that come after David? David's a good king. David's a man after God's own heart. What happens after David? You have Solomon. Solomon starts out pretty good. He's praying for wisdom. He wants to lead the congregation well, the people of God well. By the end of his life, it's not going so well. And then his son goes even further off the rails. And then when you read this history of all these kings, more or less like nine out of ten times, they're evil kings. They're evildoers. So all of this evil has been encroaching in the land again. It's coming back. And so you have these bad kings, these bad leaders. Herod was a bad leader. We saw that last week. Look what you have, though, in Ezekiel 34. Okay, you have these, uh, verse 1. Then the, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly, you have not strengthened. The diseased, you have not healed. The broken, you have not bound up. The scattered, you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the lost. But with force and with severity, you have dominated them. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd. And they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. You know what he's saying? You guys are self-seeking. You, guys, you, you are selfish. You don't, care about, you don't care about anything but you, yourself and your own protection and your own longevity and this and that. That's exactly what we saw with Herod last week. That's exactly what we saw with Herod the Great. Herod the Great was that way. We saw how you know, he kills his son. He kills his, his wife. He kills every... You know, these guys are monstrous. These, these kings... That are called to rule over God's people. They're evil. They're monstrous. And so what God is saying in the next part, look at this same chapter, verse 23. God comes along and says, okay, we have evil kings. However, verse 23, then I will set them, set over them one shepherd, my servant David. David has long been dead. So who is he talking about? He's talking about Christ. And he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will make a covenant of peace with them. And look at this. And eliminate harmful beasts from the land so that they may live securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. I will make them and the places around my hill a blessing. And I will cause showers to come down in their season. They will be showers of blessing. And so some of this is in the process right now of taking place. As the gospel goes forth, as the gospel advances, it changes the areas where the gospel is. It changes homes. I mean, think about the homes. Think about your home, what it was like pre-Christ. Think about what your, like any home, you know, and then, and then Christ comes in. And what, what do you have? You have showers of blessing on that home. That's the gospel. That's what it does. But we have to have Christ for that to happen. Christ is our shepherd. Now, look at this other place in Isaiah. Isaiah, we have two other places in the Old Testament to look to. And every one of them, I, I tell you. And I'm saving the best for the last. Isaiah chapter 49 through 11. This is, Isaiah 40 is one of the most glorious 
most marvelous passages in the entire Bible about God and about who God is. And right in the middle of this chapter, verses 9 through 11, you have this. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might. It's talking about God. That's clearly established, right? With his arm ruling for him, behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Who is this talking about? Yahweh. Okay, to wrap up our look at the Old Testament, turn with me to Psalm 23. And those mmms are about to be woes. I promise. Because you'll see things here that correlate with what we have in Mark chapter 6. That is very cool. Alright, so here's Psalm 23. Check this out. Alright. The Lord is my shepherd, Yahweh. Yahweh is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. When I started today and I said that unless we understand who Christ is being spoken of, then when he gets around to feeding 5,000 people, we're not going to be able to appreciate what's actually going on. Okay, So Yahweh is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Verse 2 says he makes me lie down in green pastures. There is a reference in... in Mark chapter 6, if you turn with me and keep, keep your thumb on, um, on Psalm 23, but if you turn with me to Mark chapter 6, and you, you don't have to, I'll just read it to you, but next week and we'll see it, but, but what you have is when Christ is about to feed the 5,000, there's this very curious reference, and commentators have picked up on this, and they point out that how does, he, how does, how does Mark know that the grass was green? And I remember reading this in these commentators, and they would point to this this idea that the grass is green. This is verse 39. And he commanded them all to sit down by groups on the green grass. Very simple, right? Green grass. Well, these commentators look and they say, see, this tells us there was an eyewitness account whenever Mark was writing it. Somebody was there. That's how they knew the grass was green. And I always thought, well, yeah, maybe, but... I mean, anybody who knows any kind of climate or culture, like you know that in, I don't know, like in East Texas, right? And if, if, you're, if you're talking about July in East Texas, you can, you can guess the grass is green. You can guess the grass is green somewhere like, I don't know, um, in the desert is hard, of course. But that's the thing. In the desert, I would know, hey, the grass, I don't have to go to Denver to know that in, in, in November, the grass probably is not green, right? So it's just something that I've always thought, well, I don't think that's exactly what's going on here. It wasn't until I was studying for this that people were pointing out, no, 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 no. Christ, what, what Mark is doing over here in the gospel is he is showing that Christ is the Yahweh of Psalm 23. And the way he's correlating that or connecting that is because he makes me lie down in green pastures. What's he doing with these people over here? Everybody sit down in green grass, green pastures. And in case you think I'm off my rocker here, think of this. He leads me beside quiet waters. The, the next story that we're going to see after Christ feeds the 5,000 is when the water is in an uproar. The disciples are in their boat rowing and Christ is walking on the sea and he gets in the boat. And the second he gets in there, it says that the waters become still. He leads them beside still waters. 
He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. All of these things I shall not want. Verse 1, I shall not want. What's he talking about there? He's a, these people are in want. They, don't, they have nothing to eat. They're starving. What's Christ going to do? Sit down on the green grass. I'm going to feed you. And then right after that, when you're in these waters that are in an uproar, I'm going to come and I'm going to calm the waters. Christ is the Yahweh of Psalm 23. He is the shepherd of Psalm 23. That's what he's saying. Now, turn with me to John chapter 10 in the New Testament, John chapter 10. And this is the fullest, the, the fullest expression of, of Christ. Because here's the thing. You can say, yeah, but look. All right, look. And Mark, it says that Christ recognized that they were like sheep without a shepherd. But notice he doesn't say, Mark doesn't say, and Christ doesn't say, I'm the shepherd of these sheep. It's implied, but he doesn't say that. So how do you know that, right? Well, when you're interpreting Scripture or Scripture, look at John chapter 10. And then 1 through 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the field, into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some of the way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. And then he's going to go on and he's going to explain that he is the shepherd. Okay, um, look at verse 7. So Jesus said to them again, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. You're like, well, he hasn't said he's a shepherd yet. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And he goes through this. And this whole passage is about the fact that Christ is the shepherd that you see in the Old Testament. The shepherd, because again, think about all of these. Joshua didn't make it. Joshua, yeah, he shepherded the sheep for a little while, but then he dies. He didn't actually shepherd the sheep a little bit. But he wasn't perfect. There was a lot of work that was still left to be done. David comes in. He's the shepherd of the sheep. Yeah, for a while. Well, he wasn't perfect. He's got a lot of faults and problems. And, 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 so, and then what happens is you have these kings that come after David. They just get worse and worse and worse. So the people of Israel are expecting a king to rise up to shepherd the people. And here Christ is. And he is saying, guys, I am the shepherd. I'm the one that all of these passages in the Old Testament are pointing to when it comes to being the shepherd. And then look at the, what he says over on the next section, same chapter. He says, uh, and it's going to cause them, they're going to try to stone him for this. Verse 24, the Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So how is Christ our shepherd? How are we sheep? You know, what's really neat is, and, and you might have heard this somewhere, but Christ, and you see, this, you see this in this passage in verse 3, Christ has intimate knowledge of every one of us, every one of you. Christ knows you better than you know yourself. Verse 3 says, To him the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. A lot of times we think of salvation or Christ dying for us in this really vague, generic sense where it's like, yeah, yeah, Christ died for us. But what he's saying here is that, no, Christ has laid down his life specifically for you personally, individually, for every single sin that you've ever committed and every single sin that you will commit. If you're in Christ, he knows every sin that you've ever committed and every one that you will commit. And he's laid down his life for that, for you specifically, not generically, not vaguely for you specifically. He knows you by name, just like with the disciples. He knows when you need rest. He knows what you need. 
Here, though, you have this intimate knowledge. Verse 14 and 15 says the same thing. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Notice where he says, I know my own, and my own know me. There's this idea with shepherds where, you know, most of the sheep, you have, you have a lot of shepherds in, let's say, the, the time of Israel. And the sheep would all go to the same watering hole. And so when they gather at the watering hole, it's just like this conglomeration of a bunch of different sheep in the same, the same watering hole. They're all confused and mixed. It's not like you have these ropes that are corridoring people off. You know, they're all, they just kind of get all bunched together. And then the shepherds would kind of go off to the side. And usually they're talking and hanging out and, and the sheep are over here in the water. Well, these shepherds all have specific whistles. Have y'all heard this? They all have specific whistles. So when this shepherd is ready to go, he doesn't have to go through the mass of sheep and, and say, okay, well, that's, that's mine, that's mine, that's mine, all right, uh, is that mine? All he does is he whistles, and his sheep know the pitch of the whistle, and they know, hey, that's my, that's, that's my guy. We're off. And all his sheep are going to come away from the water hole, and they leave. That's insane. That is how, that's what Christ is saying right there. You don't have to, you know, when I was first converted, and I'm hungry for the word. You know how it is. You are starving. You want to be fed. And you turn on some television because you think, man, I know there's some guys on TV preaching. When I was lost, I remember coming across these guys. I never want to, you know, I never paid attention to them. But now I'm saved. I'm like, I know there's some preachers on TV. You turn them on, and you start listening to the, to the beautiful Joel Osteen, you know, and you're like, everyone talks about Joel Osteen. I got it. You know, I'm going to listen. I'm going to get fed. And it doesn't take long before you realize something's off here. You can't articulate it. You can't put your thumb on it. But you're saying, man, this isn't, this isn't the voice of my shepherd. This isn't the voice of Christ. Right? That's, that's how it is. You know. You know, a Mormon comes to your door. You're like, yeah, it sounds good. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I want to be with my family in heaven. Yeah, I want to be married in heaven and all that. But then you start... Something's off, you know, you start realizing something, something's, something's, not, something's not right here. So over time, of course, you learn and you realize it, but that's what he's saying. His, whenever God converts a person, you are a new creation. You're different. You're changed. And what that means, partly, is that you know who Christ is. You are going to follow him. That's why over here, look what it says. The love for his sheep. You know why we follow him? Because of his love for us. First, we love him, yes, but he loves us first. And he comes, and in verse 11 of chapter 10, it talks about his love. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And then verse 15, even as the father knows me, and I know the father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. He lays down his life for not his friends. Well, you know, he loves us, but we don't love him, right? This is where you get the doctrine of limited atonement or particular redemption. Okay, if you ever, it, it, that's, that's the idea that, that Christ did not die. Now hear me out, because if, you know, if the first time you hear it, you're like, what? Christ did not die for everybody. What? Because if he did, nobody would go to hell. It's that simple. Very simple logic, right? If he died for everybody, that means your sins are already paid for. No one's going to hell, right? Universalism. But of course, nobody, you know, within orthodoxy, people don't believe that. So what does it mean? It means that Christ, from before the foundation of the world, has, has, has set his love or his affections on, on individuals. And he gives his life for them. He's going to go and redeem a people for himself. That's what it's talking about. 
He's saying, I didn't lay down my life for the world. I, now, when you do have the, the word, now notice in this same book, John chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Right? For God so loved the world. Who's he talking about? He's talking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a Jew who thinks salvation is only for the Jews. Christ is saying, no. Salvation is to every nation, tongue, tribe, Gentiles, anybody who, Jew or non-Jew, anybody who calls upon the name of the Lord. For God so loved the world, not just the, not just the Jewish people. However, what you have, and, and you see that in the same passage, or in chapter 10, because Christ is saying, I lay down my life for my sheep. This is the idea of, of, of predestination. Christ's sheep, and this is, this is from, from Ligonier Ministries somewhere, um, Christ's sheep in the first instance do not choose Him, but He chooses them. And because He chooses them, look what happens. Do you realize that if it wasn't for Christ choosing us, election, predestination, what would keep us saved? You see that? If it's me that has to save myself over here in the beginning, at what point is it no longer me that keeps myself saved? But what you have in this same chapter, in the same context, is verses 27 through 30. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Why? Because he's a good shepherd. A good shepherd preserves the sheep, protects the sheep, doesn't just lay down his life for the sheep. He, he, he delivers his sheep. It all goes together. If Christ is a good shepherd and you are his sheep, he's not going to let you go. Remember the parable, 99, it loses one. What happens? He goes after it. He gets it back. He's a good shepherd. I remember hearing Justin Peters whenever uh, he was at, at, at Texaco and he was, he was explaining it this way in this passage. And he, he did something with his hands that I was like, wow, it's stuck in my mind. To this day, of course, he says about this passage, he says, you know, it's like this. So Christ is saying they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So you look at it, you're like, hey, you're in Christ's hand. The devil comes and he's trying to wrench that hand away so he can get you. Christ says, no, you can't snatch them out of my hand. They're mine. The world tries to no, you can't do it, right? The flesh, everything, everything tries to come and rip you apart from Christ. You can't do it. But then he goes like this. He says, but just in case that wasn't enough, look what Christ says after this. Verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than I, greater than all, greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. And he goes like this. So, you know, you're in his hand. And then he goes, but now here you are like this. No one's getting you out of that. If you're truly in Christ, if you're truly born again, you're not, you're not getting you, you can't go from being a new creation to something else. Christ has made you completely different. And he's going to preserve you and protect you and keep you safe because he is the good shepherd. And so next week when we start looking at this idea of Christ feeding these 5,000 people, there's something beyond, way beyond than just like a cute story of, hey, these people are hungry and Christ gave them food. Something way bigger than that. And we'll see that next week. But what we have for us is that going back to Psalm 23, you can, you can be certain that Yahweh is my shepherd, your shepherd if you're in Christ. And I have certain needs or things in my life. But the Bible in Psalm 23 says, I shall not lack. And so, you know what some of my needs are? Just give me an example. Patience, right? Well, Christ is such a good shepherd, he's going to make sure that I get patience. Now, how does that work? Well, of course, you all heard it right before. 
different places. He puts you in situations that make you develop patience. So it's not just like, hey, Christ is going to take care of all your needs. I need a, I need a motorcycle. I need a, I need a this or that. You know, I need a new job. I need that. That's not what it always means, right? Christ knows your needs emotionally, spiritually. He knows his disciples need rest. He tells them, hey, let's go take some rest. But he also knows, hey, it's better for these disciples to assume they're going to get some rest and then not get rest just to see how they respond to it. Something like that, right? And that's how our lives are. So next time, whatever situation you're in, look at that and say, Christ is my shepherd. My time belongs to him. My, my work is his. He's placed me here. Whatever circumstance comes up in life, there's a reason for it. Christ is my shepherd. But you know what? He is leading me beside the still waters. And he's taking me to the path of righteousness. He's bringing me along that path of righteousness. There's a lot more going on than just your physical needs. That's the beauty of it. And praise God for that. Because we are in the process of becoming more and more and more and more and more like Jesus Christ throughout our life. And that is difficult. Because we are wretches. And we need a lot of work. But throughout all of it, we know that the good shepherd, Christ, is leading us along. So let's pray. Thank him. Our Christ, we thank you that you are our shepherd. And we can, we can rejoice regardless of what we go through in this life. And whatever you put us in, Lord, we know that you as our shepherd, you are a sovereign God, a wise God, a, a, a good God. And, and Lord, we pray that you would help us to resign to whatever you place us in that we would resign to your will, that we would resign our lives to you, O God, that we would give our time to you, our relationships, our work, that we would give it all to you. Say, Lord, you knowest, you, you know what we need, and you take care of us. And we thank you that you, the, the greatest demonstration of the way that you take care of your sheep is by dying for them. We thank you that you've laid down your life for us, that you've suffered so that we won't spiritually, that you've cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we will never be forsaken, that we'll never be condemned. Or thank you for the resurrection. Thank you for being the first fruits, for going before us, for sanctifying even the grave itself so that death no longer has any sting. Lord, we, we, we can't even fathom how glorious and how kind you are to us, but we thank you. And we praise you. We do praise you today. And we pray that you would be with your people. In Christ's name, amen.